0: This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. I want to remind you to visit ScienceModelingTalks.com, where you can access a lot of extra content and learn more about us and the American Modeling Teachers Association, the professional organization that we promote. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Dr. James Visinka. He's known as Jamie to his friends and Dr. V to his students. Jamie had been teaching physics for three years at California State University, Fresno, when he was introduced to modeling instruction and attended a five-week workshop at the University of California, Davis, in 1998. The modeling instruction approach transformed his understanding of physics teaching and he has since embraced the established efficacy of modeling instruction over traditional physics education. Dr. Vasinka rejuvenates his own teaching each year by running summer workshops in which he trains high school and middle school science and math teachers in modeling instruction almost every year since 2000. Here's my interview with Dr. Vasinka. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing there, Mark? I'm good. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you today and getting a little information about your life with modeling and as a teacher, and I'm excited to share what you have experienced with our listeners. So I I wanted to ask you a question, and I'm not sure about this. Do you have a Russian background? I certainly do, although it's...
1: It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's a little complicated because what where they come from today is probably no longer part of Russia. In Tsarist Russia time, the country extended out a bit further into parts of Poland and the Ukraine. And so I think technically my grandparents are um, uh, both – there's a Polish descent – and um, Ukrainian descent. The last name is actually Ukrainian. Um, mm. And there, it was very common. There were a lot of Russian people living in those parts of the um, of the world at the time, and so they did speak Russian, even though they were in what would be considered different countries nowadays.
0: Yeah, you were born in the U.S.
1: Oh yeah, um, I yeah. would be the um, considered the third generation. Okay, uh, my father. We're also born, it's my grandparents who were born overseas.
0: Yeah. So, where'd you grow
1: up? I grew up mostly in a small town of Harvard, Massachusetts. Um, I, from the, basically, kindergarten all the way up uh, through college. Yeah. Um, I, my parents, my father, was a USAID um, worker. Um, he actually did help people. He wasn't a CIA agent. Um, he was in he was in Indonesia at the time, hmm. uh, and uh, my sister, uh, middle sister, was born there. Actually, um, he was offered a post in Afghanistan, and he said, "You know what? I don't think so." Um, and we left shortly, actually, before a coup in which the communists were uh, beat back by um, a general. The um, bottom line is we left before the coup happened and mm. returned to the United States. My parents um, bought a farm in uh, Harvard, Massachusetts, a place that both of them actually had some history with separate from each other. It was a youth hostel and conference center. And the family there, the owners were interested in uh, doing missionary work in Kenya, and they were looking to sell, and my parents came at just at the right time. and huh. uh, Because it was a youth hostel, uh, we had people from all over the world visit us. It was a really fun way to grow up.
0: So I know that uh, you got your Ph.D. Uh, in 1989. What, what university did that come from?
1: That was the University of California, Davis. Ah. I was uh, accepted to the graduate program in physics there. Mm-hmm. Um, all the traditional physics that they were doing, basic sciences, was not something I was really excited about. But there was uh, an associated engineering school called the uh, Department of Applied Sciences, which um, had a number of faculty doing a variety of different applied things. Uh, there was Professor De Groot, who was doing plasma physics. Um, my professor I worked with was Yin Ye. He was a biophysicist. He was studying um, how these uh, fish in Arctic and Antarctic waters um, survive in the sub-freezing temperatures um, without having to pump their body with or to get rid of the... um, water that's essential for them to live. You can, you can go ahead and increase your salt concentration, but it's not possible to live on that. And it turns out they had, they had developed these proteins called antifreeze glycoproteins, which inhibited the formation of, of ice growth within these fish. And um, huh. they, it suppressed the uh, freezing point by several degrees below uh, zero degrees Celsius, which was really, really cool, and I studied it, and I learned a lot about ice, and I got a PhD out of it. After I left, I never looked at it again, but it was (laughs) was a very good experience.
0: And what did you do immediately after receiving your doctorate there?
1: So I started uh, hunting around for um, undergraduate research that could be inexpensive and easily done at the college level, and I... I learned about this new technique uh, called atomic force microscopy. It was part of this new scanning probe microscope revolution, which involved taking extremely sharp tips. Initially, the scanning tunneling microscope, which uh, Binnig um, and um, uh, Rohrer developed and got a Nobel Prize in 1986 for in which they could bring a sharp tip close to the surface of a conducting substrate, and they could actually get electrons to jump over the gap to do tunneling and um, get atomic resolution. Um, However, biological samples require a different approach, and this is where you can take a super sharp tip, much like a record player needle, and feel the bumps and the groove of a record player. And as the tip moves up and down, you can monitor the um, change in height in order to get uh, information about the surface topography, but instead of having magnetic pickups in order to feed back on the tip going up and down and, and, uh, amplifying a sound, um, electronic wave to make a sound, uh, makes sound come from speakers. You actually record the height information and it can do this at, um, at the atomic scale. They, they nowadays they can image individual atoms with the AFM, uh, it wasn't happening initially. Initially, it was um, some other kind of uh, averaged effect that worked for lattices. But now they they actually can get uh, tips that are sharp enough so that you can feel the surface and um, get uh, structure. And in particular, you can look at things that are not conductive, like DNA. And that's where I actually started um, after I... I took a postdoc um, at the first at the University of New Mexico, then at um, University of Oregon with Carlos Bustamante. And uh, after two years there, I moved on to Iowa State University, and I worked with Eric Henderson and got um, and did most of my research there. And uh, I, all this time, I was looking for jobs. It was I graduated in '89. From UC Davis, and that's exactly the time that the Iron Curtain fell, which means it's a terrible time to try to get jobs as a physicist in academia, (laughs) because you had this influx of Russians coming in from the Soviet, (laughs) former Soviet Union, and they're brilliant, you know, they they just are. But they're they're not being paid anything, and they're starving, and so they came to the United States in droves. Um, I actually applied for a job at Amherst. College in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I was one of 825 applicants.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. Finally, in uh, yeah, in 1995, I landed a position at Fresno State, and uh, that's where I started my teaching career. And you were teaching what at Fresno State? Physics. I taught physics. Um, I taught there for three years. And I was very interested in being a good physics instructor. Um, I had just learned from a good friend there, um, whose name, i lose me right now, but it'll come back at some point. Um, He was the um, director of the uh, the demonstration equipment. And um, he told me about this thing called the Force Concepts Inventory. And it's as a way to assess how your students are doing. And so I, I, I took it out and I tested. I pre-tested the students. I post-tested the students. I checked it against... Uh, and I was spending hours and hours doing this teaching instruction. I tested against um, a colleague who was willing to do it. He arrived 10 minutes before his classes three times a week and left immediately afterwards and never paid any other attention. And I discovered... The post-test scores of his students and my students, compared to the pre-test scores, were the exact same. <laughs> huh. and, I, and I had been spending so many hours, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I realized at that point I had to do something different. And so I started looking into different kinds of uh, improved physics pedagogy involving
0: active learning. And how were you introduced to the modeling approach, to modeling instruction? That is a fun story, (laughs) an
1: embarrassing story, but it was, uh, I remember it to this day. So we had uh, seminars, colloquiums, I think on Friday afternoons. I'm not exactly, uh, can't exactly remember. But um, we would have high school teachers come by periodically, and especially when it was an education-related seminar. And there was this fellow by the name of Jerry Bodley from Fowler High School, Um, it's a high school located just south of us in the valley. And he said, you know, Jamie, you should really come to one of my half day modeling workshops because he was trained in modeling instruction. So I said, yeah, sure. So finally... I got there. I took a bunch of graduate students. Fresno State had a graduate program. And we bundled in the car and we headed on down there, even though the weather was really ominous that day. We got one of those very rare thunderstorm type of days. Um, And um, I showed up and we broke up into groups and we started doing this active learning stuff. We were working on the modified Atwoods machine. We were trying to study... Um, how the acceleration of the um, modified, you know, the cart depended upon the force uh, pulling on it or the um, mass of the cart. We're doing these um, two different experiments and um, we were building all the knowledge and we were doing the force diagrams on these new things called whiteboards. I'd never seen them before. Um, There was a really... For me, that was like, oh wow! I got to bring these into my labs at Fresno State, and I drew some force diagrams on the cart and the weight, uh, the mass that's falling, attached the string between the two, and I drew acceleration vectors for the two. And I, I knew I knew Newton's second law: the sum of the forces equals mass times acceleration. And of course, if you're going to have, it only makes sense that if your mass is bigger, um, you're going to have to have a different acceleration. And I, <laughs> I showed acceleration vectors for these two objects which were attached by the same string, but they had, were different values. <laughs> and when I, I was asked to present and explain this and try to rationalize it, I, I froze. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. How can this possibly be? And I, I realized at that point that, oh, I can see the mistake I made. And I had to learn more about it. And I tried, I I found out about modeling workshops and I enrolled in one the following summer at the University of California Davis, uh, which was nice. Um, It's a five week workshop and um, uh, it was on mechanics. And boy, did I learn so much about mechanics. It was interesting to note that after, even after teaching for four years, uh, and having gotten a PhD in physics with involving very high levels of mathematics, that uh, my 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 core conceptual understanding was very weak. And uh, modeling allowed me to recover from that. And the following summer, I spent four weeks uh, working doing action research on waves and what action research was all about was actually learning how to make models yourself to work in the classroom for your students. Given the materials that you had. And so the rest was history. Uh,
0: it was really fun. It's interesting. You said you first learned about the force concept inventory and before you were introduced to modeling. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And it's interesting, I believe Dr. Heston, this was kind of key to the force concept inventory. Oh, yeah. And he's also considered the father of modeling. So you kind of, <laughs> it's interesting that you were uh, introduced to both of those things, uh, kind of in that order. Yeah, the person
1: who introduced me to it is Roger Key. Uh, ah. And he had been, he was actually um, from Kansas State. Um, and he'd worked with a um, very famous physicist there, um, Dean Zollman. Um, and um, there were all these active physics learners, active engagement um, people were talking to each other. And, and this is, and you know, Roger said, hey, you know, try this out and see what happens. Yeah. And it made a big difference.
0: You went to Davis for that five-week workshop. Is that? I think that might have been the same one my wife went to. It, I was going to say, me Brenda.
1: I, I that's I think that's where I met your wife Brenda. Yep. Yeah. Um, at that particular workshop. That was a little while ago. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of very successful graduates from that workshop. Um, they went on to do modeling instruction all over the United States. Yeah, uh, Mark Schrober, right. uh, and was that uh, went to New York eventually and mm-hmm. set up a very large program
0: there. So most of the people I interview for this program are high school teachers, or so a couple, a few middle school teachers. But you're at the university level. Talk to me a little bit about modeling in the university setting. How you employed it, kind of, the, just tell me a little bit about that and your experience. Well. Uh, one of the first physics education
1: research grant i got funded actually was an NSF CCLI course curriculum and laboratory improvement mm. and the award um supported um the funding for training of physicists in modeling instruction it was while i was at the university of new england and uh I part of what I was to do with the funds was also to adapt and implement the instruction to the college environment. And um, the idea being that there was perhaps a little bit higher level of sophistication expected in the college environment than the high school environment. And, of course, now I I know that that, it's really so dependent upon where you're at. There are some high schools in this country who graduate students that uh, are just extraordinarily well prepared to do physics, and uh, there's a lot of colleges which barely get them off the ground in terms of um, what would perhaps be considered physics first at some other places. Um, It turned out to be a pretty good fit just making some marginal changes um, uh, to include additional curricular items that were uh, expected of the college students just to take the, the, the standard modeling curriculum and um, make it work in the, in the college environment. The challenge with the college environment initially, of course, is we don't have studios. We have a lecture and we have a lab. And that is just a, a horrible, horrible Situation in order to try to have students learn about this because it's quite difficult for them to get anything out of the lectures and most of the learning I always felt was being done in the labs. Um, but I attempted. I attempted to have students do problem solving and whiteboard presentations in the lecture classroom we kept the um, the, the uh, presentation of ideas to a minimum, and they were meant to support laboratory activities. So they had to do the labs first before we would go ahead and discuss it in the uh, in the classroom and then have them do activities based on it. Um, and that turned out to be pretty hard um, because um, the students took labs on different days of the week. Some of them would have had the lab a week before class and some of them had just barely had it and so didn't have any time to set in. So it wasn't optimal. Um, But something changed at UNE around um, uh, 2007 or so. Um, There was an interest in starting a pre- Uh, pharmacy program, which meant an influx, a huge influx on the number of students, which meant money to build a new building. And they built a new uh, chemistry and biology building with a ground floor that was um, um, unfinished. And um, at the time, I had a colleague, Charles Tilburg, and super, super smart uh, physical oceanographer, Who was brought in to teach the excess number of physics uh, um, service physics courses required to handle the influx of the pre-farm majors? And (laughs) he, we, we had this horrible rundown laboratory and an old building physics laboratory i had managed to cobble together the sensors and the like to do modeling instruction modeling type labs there but it was it was ancient it had chalkboards it was very difficult to get around actually i don't think it was even safe according to fire standards <laughs> 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 they, were, they were they were very lucky that it yeah. didn't get shut down but it only if i handled 18 people and um Uh, since Charles was extremely successful at grants, he had the ear of the dean and he told the dean, you know what? These physics labs are terrible. They're so embarrassing to show prospective students to come. Wouldn't it be nice to have some new physics labs in the basement uh, in the lower section of this new building because it's not being used? And So he persuaded the dean to do that and over my... Um, complaints because they went from 18 students to 24, and when it comes to uh, studio environment, smaller I felt was better, but they cranked it up to 24 students and uh, we got two labs and I did the math very quickly um, and showed, you know what, with the number of instructors and lab um uh, Lab uh, teachers, we could just go ahead and divide these these uh, labs up and not have any lecture at all. Just have studio physics Hmm. because we had enough staffing to do it, regardless of whether it was lecture lab or just studio. And um, I persuaded um, a new interim department chair to go this way, and he's persuaded the dean and. We switched over to Studio Physics um, around 2008 or something, 2009, and we've never looked back. Um, studio Physics has been a lifesaver when it comes to students trying to learn physics, which for a lot of them who've never had it before, it, it's the best environment because they get the kind of attention that they need in order to make sense out of the stuff.
0: How is Studio Physics different than like, the, the lecture lab approach? Oh, it's it's usually different. Studio physics for
1: is is more similar to the way modeling is done in the high school level. You know, that you come into a physics lab hmm. and you get your lecture, and uh, you know, when I say lecture, I mean short discussions that lead in that lead into the students participating and then having Socratic dialogue with them in order to explore different kinds of physical concepts. Whereas the the lecture is literally, I, I at one point I had a hundred students. In, yeah. a, in a large uh, space, and even back then, they were spending, starting to spend a lot of time on their phone. You know, the phones were getting smart enough to connect to the internet. It wasn't a, it wasn't a very healthy environment, right? Um, and it was hard to keep them engaged
0: all the time. I understand that. So you're at the University of England, and this is from what, what period of time? I started in 2000, and I'm still there today. Okay.
1: Well, you're in Germany right now. How did what's? I'm in Germany on sabbatical leave. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So you know, as as a college professor, you get the opportunity for sabbatical leave periodically. Uh, I actually took one here for a full year in 2005, six. Actually, only half a year in Germany. This time, I'm taking a full year off in Germany, and um, it's really helpful because I really can stay focused and and uh, work on one particular. Um, project. Um, when I Which is,
0: at, what, what, what's that project?
1: I'm doing atomic force microscopy of four-stranded DNA, quadruplex AFM, and I'm also making the addition of, I'm trying to attach gold nanoparticles to it. The group that I have has found ways to um, excite gold nanoparticles with visible light, and get a small wavelength shift. It's called local surface plasmon resonance. And that change in color, of course, spectrometers, very inexpensive, very cheap. And this is a fabulous technique. It's being routinely used now and actually for diagnostics. Huh. Um, you attach these gold nanoparticles to antibodies and they you can figure out Uh, just from color changes, whether somebody's infected or something like that. That, That's the hope for it, and they're doing a lot of studying in that area. But I'm actually doing the what does it actually look like, because the AFM can actually see the gold nanoparticles, it actually can see the DNA or the antibodies or whatever. So this gives us an opportunity to confirm what's being seen from the spectra with actual uh, images of what the structures look like. Wow. Right now I've got two projects that I'm going to i have some preliminary data for. I'm going to start writing up an outline for some papers. I think one of them will be chemical education. The other one will be a surface science paper. And if I can get those two done, I think that would be pretty successful. I'm also introducing modeling to um, colleges over here in Germany. I'm going to be going in the beginning of February down to um, uh, Fachhochschule in uh, Rosenheim and um, teach a course to a bunch of physics professors. Uh, a modeling a half-day workshop to uh, some physics faculty at Rosenheim. That's cool. Um, and have them explore the idea of active learning, which is uh, fairly uh, novel to them right now. They have no experience with uh, this kind of active learning instruction.
0: You need to share with them the resources available at the AMTA. Yeah, I will. I I absolutely will, yep. Yeah, and of course our podcast that we have quite an archive of (laughs) Of (laughs) interviews that they might find interesting, so that's really cool. Hey everybody, we'll continue with our interview in just a moment, but I wanted to remind you that the American Modeling Teachers Association has been transforming STEM education since 2005. The AMTA teaches an instructional strategy, modeling instruction, which builds conceptual understanding, improves classroom discourse, and engages students in the learning process. The AMTA will soon announce our slate of virtual and face-to-face courses for 2022. Hosts are beginning to schedule modeling workshops in different regions of the country. Details will be updated and registration will be open soon. You can see a full list with details as they become available at modelinginstruction.org professional-development. That's modelinginstruction.org professional-development. Don't forget the dash. Okay, back to our interview. Hey, I wanted to ask you, um, in reading your bio, I... I noticed that you're actively involved with teaching physics to life science students Mm -hmm. who are mostly, like, coming from a biology background and stuff. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the, uh, well, you called it the IPLS movement, introductory Mm -hmm. physics in the life sciences movement. Tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about that and your involvement there. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, IPLS had its... um Genesis probably in the early in the late early 2010s I, I want to say 2011, 2012, 2013, there were different groups of people who were recognizing that you know what biology students are required to take physics, but it's probably only one year that they're going to take maximum. How do we optimize it? Because if you teach the traditional sequence that is taught for physics majors and engineers, it's not terribly useful for them. Um, Mm. Most of the materials that are covered, they'll never, ever see again. Um, What is the best content for them to look at? And there's this, particularly this group um, uh, led by Joe Reddish over at um, University of Maryland, which develops a, um, a uh, it's called Umberg, University of Maryland Biology Education Research Group. And they develop an introductory physics course specifically tailored to their biology students who are going on for various types of life science careers. Hmm. And they develop a pile of laboratories that are definitely out of the usual mix. In fact if you take a look and you speak to a biologist and you take a look at the curriculum there's a lot of things that really are never ever seen by a biologist they never look at circular motion okay projectile motion meh. i mean there are definitely exercise science majors might do that simply because they deal with sports but the average biologist no and furthermore all they really need is a good understanding of speed and velocity, acceleration and unbalanced forces. They're really not necessary. Um, if you do some biomechanics and you're interested in the actual uh, motion, then you can make an argument for it, but I'll tell you the linear accelerations that we talk about are <laughs> when you go ahead into rotational systems, they're they're far more complicated. And um, so you you have to be Um, very careful uh, on how you approach that. But a lot of these sacred cows that we normally cover, especially like magnetism, not necessary at all in biology because it's hardly ever used. There's only a few very uh, small applications. And so to do a good introductory physics for life science course, you want to get rid of those things that aren't going to be necessary and cover things that really are. Right. Okay. Um, Levers are pretty good because there's good um, analogs when it comes to uh, basic biomechanics, uh, how your arms and um, muscles and leg muscles work and stuff like that. Um, When it comes to um, momentum, I found that the traditional place where it was located which is usually later in the curriculum it actually made a lot more sense to put conservation momentum right in front of understanding ideal gas laws because of kinetic theory and diffusion and diffusion is really really important for biologists yeah. so they and they don't get very good models about it they're usually just these hand waving things that don't explain the statistical nature of diffusion and random chaotic motion mm. Um, Fluids is super important. And what I just discussed, ideal gases, uh, gases are fluids. Um, It leads into a really important point that fluids are almost never covered um, in college. And when they are, they often include a lot of emphasis on Bernoulli when it comes to dynamics. And it turns out the Bernoulli relationship is often misapplied, two physical problems um one that i like to point out is uh if you take a beach ball and then you take a leaf blower and then everybody can balance it on the beach ball above the leaf blower and, and tilt an angle and the uh speed of air coming out of leaf blower is really fast <laughs> huh. you know up to 110 miles an hour right which is about 50 meters per second that's the reason why i chose that number and if you go ahead and use Bernoulli relationship to estimate what um, how large a mass, a uh, 40-centimeter object, you know, like the size of a beach ball, could be lifted up, you've, you get this absurdly huge number, 15 kilograms. Hmm. That makes no sense whatsoever, okay? Um, and that's when I realized, oh, the Bernoulli was being in appropriately applied and it actually they do this a lot in physics textbooks uh they're getting smarter about it um the uh, one of the worst ones was understanding airplane lift which is not about Bernoulli it's about attack angle huh. in other words just the wing being like this smacking into air molecules and pushing the wing up it's very simple um in any event, um, I started looking into, well, what parts of fluid dynamics are important. This is when I learned about the Poiseuille law or hagen poiseuille law. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, but it's actually quite useful to understand circulatory system because it involves something called viscosity. And there is a, a point in which um, chaotic uh, turbulent effects and laminar effects Um, start to switch. And that's described by something called a Reynolds number. And these are all fluid dynamics terms that I started to learn about and realized, you know, this is what they need to know. Because when I spoke to anatomy and physiology, teachers said, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you're covering that. (laughs) (laughs) Because they they don't get any deep understanding of it in their biology classes. So it was pretty cool. I also learned from that that there's In fluid dynamics and in circuits, there's a lot of analogs, and so covering electric circuits is a really good segue um, to help p- students understand fluid dynamics. Wow. Right? Because the resistances due to viscosity can be treated in a fashion similar to um, the resistance that uh, impedes the motion of electrons through a circuit.
0: You mentioned in uh, the, the bio that I read on you that Something you discovered this thing called physics in a box, uh, IO Lab. That's kind of a cool thing. Maybe share with our listeners. Sure, Tim Seltzer
1: and um, this fellow by the name Matt Sealens, they're in Illinois, and they they were trying to develop uh, a tool that could be used by their engineering majors to do hands-on data collection at home. And they got some NSF uh, funding in order to build these things. And actually, I learned about it because I was on a uh, National Science Foundation review panel. And I said, oh, wow, this is awesome. I want to learn more about this. So I contacted them huh. um, afterwards. And uh, it was it was amazing what they were doing. Uh, they were already several generations into the development of it. Um, and they had come up with this box that has a dynamics wheel so you can measure position and time data um, at 100 hertz, which is still better than any other major uh, physics suppliers out there, which is really shocking. Um, but it makes fantastic. It just collects absolutely amazing uh, position and time data, which means you have excellent velocity and acceleration versus time data. Um, it's got a force sensor on it up to plus or minus 10 newtons. It's got a three-axis magnetometer and three-axis accelerometer. Um, it's got a microphone and a, um, a, a audio generator. Um, it's got um, a circuit set up there so that you can connect up to do circuit analysis if you want to. Um, um, it is... Oh, it's got a pressure sensor built inside, a barometer, hmm. and um, it uh, it runs off of a radio frequency signal, which means that you, it's completely disconnected by no, no wires or anything like that. And um, in fact, it was one of the one of the things they were surprised to learn when I said, "Oh, I can use this f- to do hydrostatic pressure, which is one of our laboratories that we do." I would take the iLab, I would put it inside Ziploc bags, I triple ziplocked it, and I shoved it down into a. Very tall tube of water, and as long as it's plastic, you know, like a one of your plastic four liter types of uh, graduated cylinders, um, it did a fabulous job of measuring pressure as a function of depth. <laughs> Even though it was immersed in the water, uh, send us radio frequency signal out to a dongle, a USB dongle attached to your computer, collects just amazing data. Mm. And um, when it came to the pandemic, when other people were scrambling to figure out what the heck they were going to do, we had a small cache of them. And we just set it up so the students could take them and um, do their own experiments at home when we had to have lockdowns. And the following year, we had them rent them. And I trained everybody in my group on how to use them, so we had a much more smoother transition into um, into the uh, um, COVID pandemic environment than a lot of other physics groups had. because we were already—I had already been actually working on—I um, I called it pandemic planning, although I never expected to actually use it. Um, it was actually designed for an online course and uh, having a, an inexpensive uh, physics-in-the-box unit is essential for good hands-on uh, um, learning and um, to do it remotely. Hmm. And this This is exactly the perfect tool for it. And um, so, yeah, I'm a big advocate for it because it it really takes very high quality data and uh, it's easy to operate. And the software does a lot of great stuff. It has this Fourier transforms built into it so that you can analyze your sound spectrum. It's pretty cool.
0: Wow. Sounds really neat. So Mm -hmm. any other cool uh, tricks and tips you want to share that you've learned?
1: Other than to say that <clears throat> you definitely need to have a good sense of humor <laughs> because we live in a pretty challenging times right now. And, and um, if you can keep your students engaged um, and be excited, um, I think that, you know, that serves more than just about anything else. So, yeah, yeah.
0: The classroom really needs um, teachers who are really engaged with what they're teaching and relationally connected to their students. Uh, it is, I think, more and more critical in these days with relational disconnection that's happening everywhere, you know.
1: Yeah, so. it's, it's very challenging right now. And um, so I'm I'm glad I'm not teaching this year because I know it's been extremely hard. On everybody, they're exhausted. Um, but I'm girding my loins, so to speak, to get back in there when I return, and uh, uh, and we'll we'll just have to see where how the pandemic pans out. Um, I think having these IO labs are going to be very helpful for students at home because I my suspicion is is we're not going to be able to have um, we'll have to go to back to partial classroom sizes again.
0: So. Uh can our listeners to find uh, IO Lab about more about it and how to get a hold of them? Is that something they can just Google IO
1: Lab? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually looking it up right now. IO Lab Science is what it's called. Uh, IO Lab Science. Yeah. So this is McMillan. Now is uh, uh, has supporting the the hardware and the software. The software is free. Got it. Yeah, if you just type in IOLAB and do a go- Google search, you'll find okay. it. Okay. Um, cool. And Matt Sealan's kept a very large repository of IOLAB materials hmm. that are on his website. I think everything has been transitioned over to the Macmillan site um, because they did purchase it.
0: Okay. I-, I wanted to check in with you. The NCLB... You, you've got a cup. you mentioned <laughs> having a little bit of a problem with that. Do uh, you want to talk to us a little It's really hard to be positive
1: about No Child Left Behind. Um, at the time it was done, I know that there clearly were good intentions. But because you dangled um, accreditation and um, and money at the end of it, you know, carrots and sticks – um, it was abused. Mm. Um, specifically, people um, focused in on trying to have their students do well in assessments. And instead of doing it as it was intended by having the students build understanding um, from um, actually looking at evidence and, and, and constructing knowledge, it went into a model that rapidly devolved into memorization regurgitation and teaching to the test. Mm-hmm. And some places were caught for doing exactly that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I have not seen any major changes or divergence from that path. Uh, prior to the last administration, uh, there was some hope that they would get rid of it, but they changed it to race to the top or something like that. And um, it didn't fundamentally change this uh, model of teaching to the test. And so what happens in the college environment is oftentimes it's the first students are, uh, have actually been challenged and asked to uh, critically think and look at evidence in order to try to um, um, answer questions about, or make decisions on how things will behave Um, they're used to getting equations and plugging in numbers and getting numbers out out, and thinking that that somehow is physics. And of course, there's a lot more to it than that. And um, so... Depending upon your environment that you're in, you can have a situation where you get what we call a lot of intransigent students. Students that feel like, no, I'm not learning because I'm actually having to work to understand what's going on. I should just be told what's going on. Right. And so it's... um, it's it's made for a very challenging
0: a big complaint i've heard from many modeling instructors is that their students are coming in especially in high school the, the students are coming in from 8th grade or whatever and not having been exposed to a modeling approach you know the, the focus of teachers to help the kids learn and they're coming in expecting to be just fed information and it seems like what you're suggesting here is that uh, No Child Left Behind has actually promoted that kind of poor instruction approaches in before kids are getting to where they're being asked to really figure this out.
1: It has consequences. And the consequences are that that if you're expecting to be told, you may not look into the evidence and evaluate it And so now, especially with the absolute exponential growth of information on the web, people don't do a good job distinguishing uh, fact from fiction. Mm -hmm. And, um, in fact, it's more about whether or not they think that this fits with their view of things, which is not (laughs) science. Right. (laughs) It's opinion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we can't afford opinion. We need to have science right now. So it's, uh, it's a very challenging environment yeah. right now that we live in.
0: If you were to have a tagline, James Vysinka's tagline, what would it be? Uh, you're going to have to help me out and define a little bit more what a tagline, tagline is like, here's my underlying, st- this is my overriding statement of how I live my life and how I approach it. So, you're basically saying what I want to have on my tombstone? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't thinking that, but I, yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: yeah. Okay. So, yeah, epitaph. Uh, look at the evidence. <laughs> and uh, what does the evidence tell you, honestly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's, you know, real data, not, yeah. <laughs> not made up stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah um, that's so, that's.
1: Good. I think this is what it's all about, uh, honestly, in the college environment right now, is let's take a look at um, good quality data and make sense out of it. And um, then find ways to represent it that will help people understand what the re- what is really going on. And, um, and hmm. gosh, try to get at the people who are pushing misinformation for whatever reasons. I think a lot of it is driven by um, just pure economics. They can make a lot of money doing it, which is, is very sad.
0: Yeah. Well, hey Jamie, it's been a, it's been great chatting with you. I and uh, I mm-hmm. really appreciate you taking this time out of your day to join us and uh, and to share your experiences. It's mm-hmm. uh, been fascinating.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and I I do want to leave on one positive note. I do know that they're there are a lot of kids that are coming to college and they want to see a better world and Mm. they're really (laughs) highly motivated now because of climate change and so I I think there are more and more people who are looking at the evidence and saying you know what, it's time to do something about it and so I I do have some hope for the future. That's great
0: yeah thank you and uh, thanks for the work you're doing and for your contributions to education Thanks. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to ScienceModelingTalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes, which include guest bios, show highlights, and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom.